Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is the brilliant teacher, writer, performer, and mentor, Anne Randolph. Anne has a magical and wild story, which she goes into during our hour together, but I'll just list a few of her accolades. Her solo show, Loveland, won the SF Weekly Award for Best Solo Show. Her solo show, Squeezebox, garnered both the Los Angeles Ovation Award and the LA Weekly Award for Best Solo Show. Other solo works include Down Home, Shelter, and Miss America, for which she won the LA Weekly Award for Best Solo Performer. Mel Brooks called her a bit of a genius, and I tend to agree. Here's my conversation with the generous, wacky, wild, and wonderful Anne Randolph. I was hoping you would introduce yourself and tell me about the work that you do. Well, thanks, Sam. Let's see, I'm a solo performer. I like to write and perform solo shows about my life or things that are coming up in my life. And I like to teach others to to speak about things that scare the daylights out of them. Like, mm -hmm. speak the unspeakable, because mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly liberating to bring to light things that you're trying to hide or things that you might have shame around. And that's what I write shows, whatever is happening in my own life that I don't understand or I'm trying to integrate, then I write it and I put it on stage. And there's incredible liberation, freedom, and catharsis that happens. You have a really unique story, and I was wondering if you would, <laughs> would mind sharing. A unique story, yeah. That's a long-ass story, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like sharing any of that today? I could share it. You could just cut me off anytime because it goes on and on and on. Okay. Yeah, that's a long story. Um, let's see. Beginning, because early on I had this impulse to do uh, oddballs, misfits, to impersonate people that I saw and also to tell the stories of people that seem to be on the fringe, the margins of life. So mm -hmm. very much attracted to that. And when I went to college, I had to get a job. I didn't have enough money to go to college. Again. And I, there was an old state mental hospital there. And uh, they let six students a semester live there in exchange for um, working with the patients. What, what state are you in? I'm in... Uh, uh, in Ohio at the Athens State Mental Hospital, which borderlined West Virginia. So you had a bunch of, yeah, they talk like that down there and they got that, right? I'd never been around anything like that before. And, uh, <laughs> and I went there and I was studying theater, even though my parents said you can't major in theater, which I eventually did not major in theater. Um, but I went there and I said, uh, they said they're only letting students study in psychology. And I said, well, I could write plays with the patients. I could do this. And I'd never done anything like this in my life, but I felt very attracted to people that were mentally ill and living on the edge, maybe because I saw the King of Hearts and I had an illusion about mental illness. And they said, we only let students study psychology. And I practically threw myself at this director's feet. And he said, I've never seen someone so passionate to live into a mental institution you can move in. So I moved into this mental institution. And it was nothing like the King of Hearts. And I had romanticized mental illness. Um, uh. But what I saw... Um, um, instead, like my first day, I was on the locked schizophrenic unit, the smell of urine and dirty feet, cigarettes, and the guy, no pants on, uh, masturbating, and it was hardcore. And, but what I appreciated was there was no filter, no censor. And the people met me where they were, mm -hmm. and there was no hiding. And I remember going back to my room that night and creating a monologue based on kind of a composite of everything that I experienced and witnessed. And it was uh, wonderful for me to write about that and also very illuminating. And I went down to class the next day with this monologue and I was told, no, you can't say those things, it's inappropriate. Because I was also, at that point, acting out some of the patients, composites of the patients. And I had a teacher 
assistant pulled me aside and said, you know, you're really, you know, illuminating things that people don't talk about. And it's funny and it's deep. Keep going. And had I not had that support early on of somebody cheerleading my inappropriateness, um, <laughs> I think I would have stopped. So that, I'm very thankful to people along the way that have encouraged this voice because people don't want to hear the voice of these people. I should say these people, that sounds derogatory in itself, but people often want to not hear those voices. And I like speaking those voices because there's a part of me that is that voice. Mm, yes, uh, definitely. Yes. So you're working at the mental hospital. How long did you work there? Well, they usually only this students stay there one semester, but they like me so much, Sam. They let me live there all four years. <laughs> they just gave me the keys. And they gave, I didn't have a car. They gave me the keys to the state van. I could go anywhere I wanted. I had a boyfriend in a punk band. I just put, you know, 10 people from the locked unit in there, and we'd go down dancing all night. So um, they, I really had tremendous freedom, and I'd do plays, and the, the hospital administration loved the plays, mm -hmm. that the, and I'd write plays casting the patients and my friends from college and I'd invite the community nobody would know who was who I wouldn't tell anybody because who really is crazy right we're all crazy and um, so I had an incredible experience there and then after that I was like I want to go to New York I want to get on Saturday Night Live that was my goal because mm -hmm. I did comedic characters but I also knew I had this deeper side but I was always kind of like well what do you do with this deeper side nobody makes money telling solo stories or monologues you know where do you go if you do these have these skill set or talent and so I thought sorry not live but um, I didn't have any money so I went to Alaska my parents gave me a one-way ticket um, for graduation why, why Alaska because I read the back of magazine make $20,000 in one summer cleaning fish and I was on the slime line my first job after college graduation was picking blood balls off salmon as they came down the cannery um, line and very exciting for me, Sam, but I got fired because I was like Lucille Ball. The fish were going every which way, and I sucked at it, and uh, and I didn't have any money. I was living in a tent for four months on the spit, and then I saw a job listed in the paper for college professor wanted in playwriting and humanities, and you need to have a master's, Ph.D., but I had written plays. I had never taken a humanities class, but I figured how hard could it be? You know? <laughs> so I went in there and I, well, I lied. I said, I'm a college professor and I got the job. So this other skill set came in and fake it till you make it. Yes. So I uh, learned a lot there. And I put up the first production at the college, wrote the first play, it was really successful, did really well as a teacher, professor. Yeah. Quote. In quote, yeah. <laughs> so that that was a quite an incredible experience. And then, um, and after that, I had saved that twenty thousand. Took me a year to save twenty thousand dollars to go to New York, lay it on the line. Finally, lay it on the line. This is a long story. I don't know if you want to hear I this long it. story. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this, then I go to New York City. No, I go to Boston, and immediately I didn't go to New York because my boyfriend wanted me to come to Boston. Uh, from college, and I immediately got the best comedy group and the best touring theater company. And at that time, Boston actually had an incredible stand-up kind of thing they going had on. An amazing didn't it? comedy scene, yeah. And I felt like, oh my God, I made it big! I had the top in the Boston comedy scene, and now I was ready for New York. So, but now I, I ran out of that twenty grand again. So I'm like, what the hell? So I put an ad in the New York Times. I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to. I really wanted to get it on Saturday Night Live, and I put an ad in the New York Times saying, "Alaskan Bushwoman." seeks free room and board in exchange for tutoring in the arts and or companionship. And I got a lot of freaky calls. Like, let me in your bush, bush woman, let me in your bush. <laughs> but I got one legitimate answer, and this was from a woman who's 
mother had just died and um, her father was all alone on this penthouse apartment in Central Park West, the El Dorado, which is one of the most beautiful buildings in Central Park. And I went up there and I interviewed. Elevator opened up to our floor. All I had to do was kind of make him laugh before the maid came in, and I got free room and board in this penthouse apartment on Central Park. Phil Donahue lived in the building at the time, Chevy Chase. It was this movie star-studded place. So I lived there a year in New York City. Um, and what happened was i go around and I would audition, or I tr should say try to audition, and i go see other comedians, and I saw that people were so much better than me, incredibly talented, and some were better physical comedians, and Louis Black, who hadn't made it yet on The Daily Show, he was performing this really like crappy basement for only 12 people, and he was 40 years old at midnight, and I thought, if this guy is this brilliant, and he's 40 years old, and he hasn't made it, I will never make it. Hmm. I don't have the chops. And I saw this night after night, as I saw people that were better than me, and um, I just gave up slowly, just lost that dream, because uh, this is something I learned that comparison kills creativity. And that did it for me. I really saw people, and I, that shut down everything, that comparison. And I was out of control. My comparative mind took over. Uh, and I then left New York City and um, because I, I went to figure out what to do with my life because I thought art is not it. I don't have the chops. And I didn't have any money. My little job I had on the side, it was working with after-school kids, had petered out. And so the Alaskan Valdez crashed. Exxon Valdez, Captain Hazelwood, all that oil spilling out. And I heard people made $2,000 a week cleaning oil and rocks from that drunkard's mess. And I went up there because I figured that's a way to get fast money and figure out what to do with my life. Back to Alaska. Back to Alaska. Back to Alaska, Sam. You can stop me at any time because the story goes on and on. Uh, I don't know if you want to. No, this is, this is important. Okay. So I go to Alaska and I clean these oily rocks and I'm making $2,000 a week. I'm covered in crude oil. Head so to it toe. was true? You could really make $2,000 yes. a week? Yeah. You make, you're out to sea. You can't spend the money. And what was fascinating was sometimes you'd get off the boat. So you had three weeks on, one week off, three weeks on. And some of these guys, when they get that money and they get off that boat, it'd be like three in the morning. And they had all this checks, but they didn't have a way to cash it. And they were so like pent up that they would literally, the taxi drivers would walk around, I mean, drive around with hundreds of thousands of dollars so they could cash their checks so they'd go get so screwed up in the middle of the night. I mean, it was like, and then they also had a prostitute boat. Half the time we would like send oil down into the, be cleaned up by the other skimmer boats and that skimmer boat would be tied up to the Betty Ann, the prostitute boat, and nothing would happen. It was just like nonstop chaos of like moving one grain of sand a day and nothing happening. And then they picked a winter crew, and I hadn't made enough money yet. I thought, well, I need to make more money. I need more money. And the only criteria for the winter crew was driving a skiff. You're out to sea for now seven months. You can't turn back. You have to be able to drive a skiff. It's a skiff. A skiff is a small little boat, a little with like a 35 horsepower motor, and you have to be able to navigate, you know, rough seas in that skiff. You know, I, yeah. I don't know how to drive a skiff, but once again, I figured, how hard could it be, right? So, because I figure I'm once out to sea, can't turn back. So I go out to sea, and um, I get that job. And what I don't realize, I quickly learned how to drive that skiff, and um, was that I was the only woman on this boat with uh, with men with like only eighth grade education from Louisiana. And there was one guy who had a master's degree in theater who was Filipino. He came up to the size of my breath. I mean, he was smaller than me. Anyway, we fell in love and we had to sneak around that boat. And um, what was hard was that these guys were racist and sexist. And my boyfriend's name was Amato. And they called him Julio the whole time. 
And I figure I'm not going to make it out to sea and I can't turn back. What am I going to do? And what happened was the impulse to tell the story, to speak what I was seeing came back to me. So I started creating monologues of these guys on the boat. And somehow this impulse of me kind of illuminating where they were in their mindset, we were able to create this, um, I, I hate to say this, I actually love to say this, it's family because <laughs> they're not going to change. I wasn't going to change, but we found a way to really come together out at sea yeah. with these differences. And I found a way to express what I was feeling with the racism and sexism in a way that was comedic and cut through. Mm. And that, that gave me my mojo back. That gave me like, okay, I'm making these guys laugh and I'm able to express myself. There's a sort of liberation that happened there yeah. and I got my juice back. So, yeah. so now I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna do theater. I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna write a show about being on this boat with these Exxon people. Sam's here going, yay, yes, yay. I was like, okay, I got my, and I've been out to see a year and I got a chunk of change. What am I going to do? So I'm going to go to New York and I'll put up a show about these guys on Exxon, right? Oh my God. That was the idea. And then I'm, so after a year I have this chunk of change I'm going to go to New York and I stop in Santa Fe, New Mexico to see a friend of mine. I tell her my big game plan. She goes, Ann, why go to New York? Try it out here first in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I go, no, I'm going to New York. But something possessed me to, you know, go up Canyon Road one day. I remember borrowing her bicycle and riding up Canyon Road, which was probably the most beautiful road in Santa Fe with galleries and mansions. And there was an Airstream trailer in the back of one of these mansions. And something possessed me to get off my bicycle and write a little note saying, I'm used to living in boats and tents. Can I live in your Airstream? And the next day I get a call saying the Airstream is not ours, but the mansion is. You can move in tomorrow. <laughs> we are three professors studying chaos theory with the Santa Fe Institute. So I took that as a sign. And um, Joseph Campbell talks about invisible hand synchronicity. And um, that's what happened. I moved into that mansion. And I decided to focus on writing that show and putting it up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I was dating a contractor boyfriend. I immediately found a guy that I fell in love with. And um, I was singing church, uh, Episcopal. I love to sing classical music. So I was singing this Episcopal choir. And I started putting out my intention of that I, I wanted to perform outdoors against the Sangro de Cristo Mountains. I just put that intention out over and over again, but I couldn't find a theater. And I had the money, right? But I couldn't find a theater that matched exactly what I wanted. Until one day the church goes, well, we've got land. Why don't you build it? And my contractor boyfriend built this theater with the money from Exxon, with the land given to me by the uh, Episcopal Church for this outdoor theater. And I put up the show in Santa Fe, New Mexico with the money from, it was incredible. So I finally laid it on the line. And one thing I want to say, I am a procrastinator and I waited to the last minute um, to finish the show so it would just hang there. So what I found, and I, I call this accountability and I teach students this, is I put the press release out before the show was finished in order to light a fire under my butt because that made me complete it. I don't know if anybody else has that problem, but that helped me tremendously. So I put up the show and I immediately get cast uh, I get these incredible reviews. I'm like, oh my God, yay. It was a big ordeal for me to put it up finally. And people loved it. And to see, get headlines. And there was a, a director in the audience who said, Ann, you're funny. What do you want? And I go, I want Saturday Night Live. And he goes, I think you should come to LA. And he cast me immediately in a movie, a comedy movie called Lucky Luke. And I get my SAG card, my equity card. And then I go to LA and I, he tells me about a school called Groundlings, and I'd heard about Groundlings, which is where everybody from Saturday Night Live came out of. And I, I have to get a job, so I take a job. Not that I didn't have money still, but I took a job at the graveyard shift, uh, working seven at night to seven in the morning with homeless, mentally ill women. I took that job so I'd have my days free to create and go to school mm -hmm. at Groundlings. And what about sleeping? Um, what is it? What, sleeping? sleeping? I slept a little. 
it, Sam, because they went to bed. They went to bed, and then I would write, and then I would go to bed. Mm-hmm. And but I'd also come home and sleep a little bit, and then I'd start my day. But it was I took that job because I could sleep a little bit. Right? It was not full on graveyard. You had to be wide awake, or I probably would not be able to do it. <laughs> so. Um, I, but these women were like crack whores from Santa Monica. They were like hardcore, you know, and I loved these women. And I felt just being around them also influenced the characters I was creating at Groundlings. And so I would go into Groundlings and I'd have these characters and I would go up these classes and every hundreds of people are being weeded out. And eventually I made it into the company. And I was performing every week with Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry, Chris Catan. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fast track to SNL, right? This is what's going to happen. But what happened was two things happened. Those characters, that I, one in particular was a crack whore, and I could hear her voice over and over again, tell more of just comedy, tell more. So I literally write, and she'd want to say more than just comedy. Yeah. And then I could feel that on stage. I'm just getting a three-minute sketch. I want so much more. I am much more than a three-minute sketch. I, have, I want to illuminate the whole human condition. This is just, no. And so I quit the Growlings, and everybody's like, are you nuts, Anne? Are you crazy? You wanted this your whole life, was to get to this place, the Saturday Night Live. But I knew what I wanted was not that, but solo performance. Yeah. To go back, but who makes their money in solo performance? Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Where is that? Right? So I decided, okay, I'll focus on like an hour-long dramedy, like Ally McBeal. So the next show I write, I write, you know, focusing on getting an hour-long special. But also it has pathos in it. And I immediately get signed by an agent, William Morris. But right before I was to go on in front of the networks, they told me, take out that crack whore. It's too much. It pushes people's edge. And that crack whore I loved more than anything. But I took it out. I listened to him. And when I was on stage that night, I felt like I'd taken out my heart. And they would go, you were good tonight, but you were not great. And good does not sell. And they let me go, which is normal in Hollywood. If you don't sell, they let you go. Well, after a year, I have no money. I'm still working the shelter. I spent all the money on classes, doing everything. No groundlings. No groundlings. No money. And I read another show, and I say, screw it. I'm going to say whatever I want this time. And so I write another show. I say, whatever I want. And it gets best comedy show in L.A., best solo show in L.A., best solo perform, but I don't make any money. The industry, they come say, you're too far out. Your characters are too inappropriate, especially that crack whore, blah, blah, blah. And this went on. What does the crack whore sound like? I got me curious. I don't, yeah, baby. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my I need my cigarette and I need my jug of wine in okay. order to do this character. No. <laughs> These are fake props, by the way, audience. Um, and um, so I do, I, it was show after show, I would win award after award, and I wouldn't get anywhere. I was like, and I was going broke. It cost $500 a month just to, a night just to rent a theater. And I was making $8 an hour, so it took forever to rent the theater, make the money. And I'm like, what am I doing? And now it's, I'm almost 40 years old. It's 10 years at this shelter, $8 an hour. This sucks. I'm going nowhere. Even the, the thing is, though, I realized this whole time I am living a lie because I've been lying to everybody about what I do. Everybody thinks I've made it in Hollywood because I get these incredible accolades, reviews, blah, blah, blah. But I can't make a dent in making my income from it and um, just get really to this point of complete losing of faith and want to give up. And I remember the, one of the few people who knew what I did was my writing teacher, Terry Silverman. She goes, Ann, you need to write about what you don't want to write about or what you don't want anybody to know, and that is your work at the shelter. And I had lied because I didn't tell people I worked that graveyard shift. Even though I had, I loved the women, I didn't want people to know that I was not successful as an artist, so I had hidden that. And so I knew she was right. And it's that feeling of dare to bear, tell people what you don't want people to know. So I wrote about, and that night I went, she gave me the writing prompt 
what surprises you most about your life right now? And for me, it was working the graveyard shift, working a job that nobody wants. Uh, if I took a day off, nobody would cover me. I mean, just really going deep into my life there and about losing faith. And I wrote about loss of faith. And also during this time, I was reading a book by Julie Cameron that said, write in the direction you want to see your life going. So within that show, I wrote that I was driving up to Big Sur and I was I quit my job at the shelter and I was teaching at Esalen. That was in my, really? yeah, I didn't put Esalen, I put driving up to Big Sur. And so I literally wrote, I always imagined at the same time that I would be in New York having a show on Broadway that I would also be at Esalen. And that was interesting that the show is not about an actress trying to make it. This show is about a caregiver. What if this was a caregiver's only thing was to feel that they made a difference in life? So that's the track I took with that show. Mm -hmm. And in writing that show, I really got my, my mojo back. I got my faith back. I got to this point of just let go of outcome and you don't know if you're ever going to make any sense from your art. And what you've found is that you love creating, you will always create, and you don't know if the show will be money, you don't know. And you really, that's the only thing you can do is love, love creating. And I got to that place, and I put up that show, and once again, it wins all the awards, and I go back to shelter, but I was in a different place. Mm -hmm. And then one night, Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft see the show, and I know they're coming because uh, one of my students, uh, not one of my students, <laughs> one of my fellow students in my class kept saying, I'm going to bring my in-laws to see your show. But I didn't know her in-laws were Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft. I used to say, whatever, bring whoever, I don't care. And then they're there one night, there she is. And Mel Brooks on one side, Ann Bancroft on the other. And they immediately come backstage and they say, we love this. This show is brilliant. This is a show I had written about the shelter. And Ann goes, uh, and Mel goes, we want to make a movie of this. And Anne goes, yeah, I want to play one of your characters. And I go, which one? She goes, the crack whore. So all this rejection of crack whore, just like here is Anne Bancroft wanting to play this character in a movie. Yeah. And they go, what do you want, Anne? And I go, well, I love the stage. I've always loved the stage. I want to go to Broadway. And they go, we'll make that happen. So the show at the time was two hours and 20 minutes. And Mel goes, you're not going to New York until you get it down to 80 minutes. So for the next year and a half, I would go to Mel's house and Anne's, and they'd help me craft this piece and get it down to 80 minutes. And the stakes were high because they optioned it, right? So if you don't get it right, they don't have to produce it. <laughs> and we're also working on the movie at the same time. So I am rewriting it, and Mel, every six weeks, would have me go to New York and put it in front of Chevy Chase and Liam Neeson to weigh in, is the show ready or is it not? And you know how I shared I let go of outcome and I surrendered? That all went out the window. Ambition was back in full force. I was like, I gotta get it. I've gotta get it. This is my one and only chance. And screw let go of outcome. I'm gonna make this happen no matter what. So I really saw myself flip again back into that ambition mode. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I, so finally, after, oh, this, this is an interesting story. The show's almost, I'm getting it down to 80 minutes. And Mel goes, I think you're almost ready for New York. I just need to see it in the, in the, in the, in the Midwest. He wanted to see it in the Midwest. So my friends, I, comedians, booked me into this theater in Minneapolis. And I immediately get up there, and I know it's the wrong theater for my show. My show is not just pure-ass comedy. It has this through line and narrative. And this show, this, this theater is attached to a bowling alley. And I'm performing, and I literally hear people say, strike! And the people have their feet up on stage. They're drinking beers. They're like, tell me a joke! It was like a bunch of yahoos. It was not a, th it was not a theater designed for a narrative arc. And Mel and Ann are coming up to make their final decision, is this show ready for New York or not, based on this audience. And it's the wrong audience. I know I'm not going to get it. So here's where I do whatever it takes. I go to the Guthrie Theater, which is one of the most um, 
beautiful theaters in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they're showing a comedy by Sheridan, and it's a very, you know, audience that gets theater. And I don't watch the, the show, I watch the audience, and I see who's laughing, and I pull people aside at intermission afterwards, and I say, you're never going to believe this, but Mel Brooks is coming to this shithole bowling alley in one week. Will you be my ringer? Will you be my ringer? Will you be my ringer? And I do this to like 50, 60 people. So when Mel and Ann come to this bowling alley that night to see this show, that audience is stacked with the most perfect people that would be right for that show. I watch who's laughing at the Sheridan, at the Guthrie, and I pick those people, handpick that audience. So after I do the show, I mean, that audience is loving everything, right? At the end, Mel comes backstage and goes, oh my God, and the audiences up here are amazing. You are ready for New York. Boom. So ready for New York. So I put this, so finally, finally ready for New York and quit my job, right? So this whole time, I'm still at the shelter while I'm working with Mel. And uh, I quit the job. I go back to, we're supposed to open in May. I go back to live with my parents because I have no money. So in between, I'm living there until, it's like either homeless shelter or Broadway. Anyway, with my parents. And right before, maybe in February, the show's to open in May, I get a call from Mel saying that Anne's been diagnosed with cancer and that we're going to postpone the opening to August. And she's going to be okay. We just need to turn you over to another producer to handle the day-to-day openings, offerings of the show. And I get off the phone like, thank God. And it's going to be okay. And my second thought was another producer. Who is this other producer? Who's because I only knew Mel and Ann. Yeah. And as the weeks go on, my director and months go on. The shows to open. We hear very little from this other producer. And my director, who's had shows on Broadway, said, "Ann, you need to call Mel and tell him there's nothing in place. You can't open a show in New York, eight shows a week, 200 seats a night, without a marketing plan in place." And I want to call Mel and I say, "I want to say, look, this is what's happening." But I've now found that Ann is dying. Right. And so I froze and it was a t- I remember going to my therapist and my therapist was like, and you need to tell somebody you can need to tell Mel what's happening. But I couldn't because I felt how can I ask about me? How can I? So I felt in this place of total like, well, actually, it was not, it wasn't fight or flight. It was just frozen, frozen in fear. Like I'm going to enter New York. It's going to bomb because there's no marketing in place. But I held on to this glimmer of hope that I'd get an incredible review in the New York Times of these papers, and that would turn things around because I'd only gotten incredible reviews my whole life. So I put up the show in New York. Mel and Ann came, my parents, everybody came from, uh, and we opened, I got incredible reviews. Mel saw that these seats were not selling for the following week, so he, he felt off when he started taking out quarter page ads in the New York Times for $20,000 a pop, trying to change the course of this sinking ship. And then reviews came out wonderful, but it didn't do enough. <clears throat> and the, the show closed. And that was a devastating time because you get your dream. I'm like, I'll never have Mel Brooks again. I'll never have this experience of Anne. Anne is dying. My friend, my mentor is dying. I don't have this chance. I have no money. I have nowhere to go. So I went back home to live with my parents. And it was like to go this far and have it collapse was excruciating. I remember my parents actually going up and down the TKTS line in New York saying, please come see my daughter. Please come see my daughter. It was just like gut-wrenching. That part usually makes me cry. I'm glad I'm not crying. I had too much caffeine. <laughs> but, oh, so I'm back home with my parents and uh, eating uh, shit every day. I remember being in my room with books on the bookshelf that said do what you love and the money will follow and I'm like fuck you right it was that place of like all this new age BS all that just really took me down and I lost faith completely lost faith and then at the same time my mother had a stroke was paralyzed on one side and my dad was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer 
So the grief was overwhelming. Mm. And uh, it was pretty much the loss of every security, of dream, of family, of home, of income, all in one year. And it was also near my birthday. And I remember a friend sending me a book of Rumi poems. And it was the poem. I did that thing where you flip through the pages and say, please show me what I'm supposed to learn. And it was the one about the chickpea leaps to the edge of the pot where it's being boiled and says, um, you know, let me out. <laughs> I'm done boiling. And the chef hits it with a ladle and says, no, you need, hits it back down into the boiling pot and says, you need more flavor, more character, now boil some more. And when I read that, I felt like, whoa, my. Um, my whole life had been a, a series of these boilings, right? And it, I knew, in one sense, this is where faith came from, that with each boil, I had become more fierce as a writer and a performer. And I saw that as like, and you go through this now. This is the hardest time yet. You go through this and you write. And I had a ferociousness when I picked up the pen again. Uh, with a raw, I, I wrote with a rawness and vulnerability I had never written with before. Before I would hide behind characters, not that I didn't have characters in the next show that I wrote, but I did it with a way that was not one-dimensional, but three-dimensional, that these characters were living, breathing, suffering, hilarious, everything. I cut to the core, and it was, and um, after my dad died and my mother uh, was in a nursing home and adjusting to life in a wheelchair, I put up this new show in San Francisco called Loveland. And, and I remember opening, it was during previews, and audiences coming backstage, students, because I had been teaching at this point, not even able to look me in the face, and one student with no impulse control say, it was so cool to see my teacher fail. I was bombing every night on stage, and I wanted to throw in the towel, but my director who was there said, Anne, the writing is there, but you're not there yet. And it was true. I had cut through and written with this rawness and vulnerability, but I was afraid to really let it into my own system to let myself be exposed in that way. So it goes, the only way you're going to learn is to get up there each night and do it again. So each night I would get in front of a live audience and I would fail. But each night my suckle level would get less and less and less. That's my term I learned from Heather Woodbury. Your what? <laughs> my suck level gets less and less and less. And um, Tavis Smiley has a book called Fail Up. And that's what I did. I failed up. So every night by the time the show opened, I had landed. And it won Best Solo Show in Los, uh, San Francisco and Examiner. And I say that, but the show, and it made money, and it ran. For, it was supposed to run for six weeks. It ran for two years straight. And, and it's still running, isn't it? It's still running. It goes everywhere. And I thought, what is it? What is it about this show that's different? And because people would literally wait in the audience to tell me their own story afterwards about something that they lost or grief or loss, I would have people lined up to tell me their story. And um, and then it hit me that because I had allowed myself to expose that rawness and vulnerability and that kind of inner misfit and oddball of my own self that gave other people permission. And I saw. And then I was invited to perform at the Arena Stage, which is probably one of the biggest theaters in the country last year. And I thought, what if I did this thing where I perform the show, and after each show, I invite the audience to write about their own loss and then take the stage and speak about it, like do this interactive thing? Because I saw people so wanting to express their own vulnerability, their own misfit, their own loss, and the cathartic healing, I believe, that can happen when they when they do that. And the arena great, agreed. So on opening night, I did it. I performed. And after, sh after my show, I said, who would like to stay and write? 
I'd say 60% of that audience stayed and wrote about loss, and they got up on stage and shared their own loss. So it was an incredible interactive experience that I now do everywhere whenever I perform, and I felt my whole life had led me to this point to be able to speak about loss and grief and give others permission using humor as a way in. How long is the show itself? 70 minutes. And then how long is the part where the audience takes part? 35 to 40 minutes. Uh-huh. So right afterwards, I pass out pens, paper, do a guided little exercise. They write for 10 minutes, and then they share. And they don't have to share. It's enough just to write it. What percentage of, of the people you, you meet have are a burning desire to talk about grief, do you think? I think everybody has a burning desire to talk about loss and grief. Well, I should say that not consciously, Sam, but unconsciously we're trying to hide it all day long. Mm-hmm. We're going around trying to hide everything of, uh, you know, I'm okay, everything's fine, I just feel great about my life, you know? So I think it's like, um, if we can let go of that and just speak from that place that is very vulnerable, I know I didn't want to, I hid behind characters. Mm-hmm. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm sure I do still, but I work at not hiding anymore. It's an interesting tension between, because what I remember from Loveland um, is that it's very funny. Yes. I remember laughing my ass off. So the fact that it's, there's a huge part of it that, that deals with grief as well. I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't see that combination very often. Yeah. But there are two sides of the same uh, laughter coming out of pain, right? Mm-hmm. Laughter coming out of uh, just what we want to say and we don't say, right? And to me, humor's, humor's like saved me a lot of times because the way I'll view a situation, I can either view it like tragically or I just will go in there and find the funny in there. Do you think we all have the ability to, to find funny? And to be funny and get laughter? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. Uh, but I like to get, I mean, I think people lose their sense of play. That's why I love people. I, that's why I love teaching, because I love to have, especially uptight people, I love them to come, type A's, to come to my class. Like, Gucci goo, no. <laughs> I mean, I like to, I, I know it's in them. It's in everybody, but people lose it along the way. Well, and it's I one love of the, the best feelings ever yeah. to get a laugh from an audience like let's say there's somebody listening to this podcast who's they just don't think they're that funny or they don't know how to yeah how to how to get a laugh what tips would you offer to them tips for getting a laugh Sam. yeah um tips for getting a laugh i think first it's uh, you know sometimes it's just can you laugh at yourself first can you <laughs> laugh at your own ridiculousness that these limbs, these arms, our mouth, you know, are just our thoughts. You know, sometimes our thoughts are shameful, right? But if you could turn, even looking at a thought that is shameful and see, is there any humor that I can find in that shameful thought? I'm trying to think if I can give you an example of that. But um, No, that's that's huge, to be able to laugh at yourself yeah. is, the, is the first step and yeah. find that you're ridiculous. Yeah. And teasing. I mean, some people don't like to be teased. And I look at teasing. I just saw the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, little rare footage of that, where they're just they're just in each other, like teasing, 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 like mischievous, right? So that loosens that, I'm this person that I'm so, you know, I think, you know, I like working, too, with those hard shells that, you know, because it's impenetrable. Some people have got the walls up, and I think teasing sometimes mm-hmm. I'm talking about fun teasing, not teasing where it's bullying teasing, can be really 
a wonderful thing as well to let that in because mm. it's really, I think, somebody loving you when it's that kind of tease and mischievous play. Okay. So right. I just so saw that happen with Desmond Tutu and, and Dalai Lama. So, and I've heard Yogananda talk about that as well. Yeah. What about um, improvisation? Is that a big part of it, of, of teasing the laughter out of the, the audience, like uh, not having a plan or getting away from a plan? Well, I think improv all day. Like, that's all I want to do is play all day. I mean, in the interaction, because that's presence, right? What's showing up right now and can I play with it? Right? If you could do that in your day rather than, like, I went on this date. Okay, this was crazy, maybe six months ago with this guy. Okay, I'm on Tinder. And the only guy that showed up in Tinder in Kauai was this 76 year old man. Now, this is way younger than me, people. We're at Tinder. We're at Tinder in Kauai. And if I was on Tinder in Kauai, so I'm, I'm much, maybe 27, 28 years younger than this guy. Something I would never like, but I figured, oh, okay, it's the only person matched in Kauai. And he was a um, composer, right? Because he put his website. Like, I'm intrigued because he's a composer. I love classical music. Might as well just meet and meet a new friend on Kauai. And I go there to meet him in this food court in Princeville, and where all these tours hang out. It's a wonderful date to have a food date, a first date in a food court, Sam. <laughs> but anyway, I go there, and the tours are looking terrified. I, I go there all the time to get my coffee, and they're, they're they got their they're face down in their food and they're bare, and they're looking up every now and peeking about this this man in the corner who's standing stationary, and frozen in the corner of the food court and I look and see what they're looking at and this man dressed full on in an Arab chic outfit and I realize it's him and I go up to him and I go is that you and he goes yes and he pulls off the turban removes his chic outfit and he says I like to play nice to meet you and so for the next hour and a half all we do is improvise and play we don't like where are you where are you from what do you do how do you do blah 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 it's just like improvise and I just had the best time we became friends how cool yes but that, you know, I was just in Barcelona. I feel like the whole city just wants to play in Barcelona. So I really enjoy that. I don't like, um, not that there's not a time that one, because I'm also talking about share vulnerability, share things that you feel, but also things that scare you. But I also think this element of play in our culture has disappeared uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with Loveland that you've performed hundreds of times? Yes. Is there an element of improvisation in it, or is it all sort of like it will work like clockwork? Because no, I know this is the way it's it all, works. The script is there, but the, everything in between has. I wish you'd see it again, Sam, because it is deep into another level. Um, I'm finding levels that I've never even imagined I could find. So the words are all there, but the inner life is a depth that I've never ever imagined in my whole entire life that I could get to. Mm -hmm. So it's like creating something that was much harder that I had the chops to perform. I think you saw it years ago. Didn't, yeah. have, didn't have chops. And now I still like probably next year I'll say, oh, I didn't have the chops this year. It keeps growing. It's right. like a meditation practice that right. I keep finding the layers. And I'm very excited about that. And the more layers I find in myself, the more I see the audience resonate. Yeah. So the more powerful it becomes. It's incredibly powerful. Not that I don't have like suck ass shows every now and then. Oh, you do? Yeah, I still will have them. But my consistency level. How do you know that it's the, the show is not going right? Um, if I don't hit the emotional beats. Ah. Uh -huh. Yeah, if I can't find all those layers, but the consistency still, I'll be like, people won't know that. The audience won't know it. I will know it, you know, because you can't. I think that's something I beat myself up and still work on all the time is holding on to that line that the agent told me, you were good tonight, but you were not great, and good does not sell. 
right? So this feeling I have to knock it out of the park and be great every night is really, I work with that one. That one's a, because I want to knock it out of the park every night. And most of the time, because you know its effect, what it can do, how it can help. Do you ever feel like the, the audiences are too kind? Like if they're too, they're like, yeah, and they start laughing real big right away. And they that's know. excellent audience. <laughs> that's the best audience right there. Excellent. That's the only time you're going to get that. I had this, um, I spoke to Peter Myers and he had an interesting thing to say about having a clean open. Yeah. You want to, you want to go out there if you're giving a speech or, or acting and right away do something that's valuable and good because I think that way you get your momentum yes. rolling. They trust you and you trust them. Right. I don't know. Uh, okay, let's say that doesn't happen. How do you recover from kind of stepping on yourself in the beginning of, uh, of work? Well, that's a great question because of this, because if you, you're coming out there opening, I know exactly where the first laugh is going to be, right? And if that first laugh doesn't come or if I blow it or something happens out there, then the inner critic comes out. You ding dong, you screwed up. They hate you, blah, blah, blah. So it's also a meditation of what do I do in that moment when the self-loathing comes up mm. for not executing or going out the way that I know it can roll out. Yeah. And it's, it's really you're practicing also forgiveness, self-forgiveness over and over again. So first thing is acknowledge that voice, that inner critic. Self-forgiveness comes in, compassion for self, and then go right back into an audience member who's giving you good energy, is looking you in the eyes, and tell that story to them. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing you have to put that focus back out on telling the story because the self-loathing or inner critic that knows how a joke or should roll out will want to take over in that moment and say, see, you don't belong up here. You don't belong here. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly working with that on stage at the same time you're telling the story because you cannot not be affected by the audience. If somebody is, you know, uh, making their legs go up and down or say they took out and they, this is a problem on Broadway. I haven't had it where they show the screen. You see somebody texting, right? And you see the screen light, you know, that's saying you're not interesting, right? So what do you do in that? Because the, the inner critic will say, see, you're not interesting, I mean, you have to go back to that one person or two people or the handful that really are loving you up. Yeah. Um, what is your, uh, I'd say, favorite part? What's your favorite part of Loveland that you've performed so many times? Favorite part of Loveland? Yeah. Perform. That you uh, love to do? Oh, I can't. It's out of context, so that wouldn't work. Um, I think it's... Uh, setting up the performance for this avant-garde piece that this character does called listening to the drone it'll help you die uh-huh. and i think the feeling that i like about that is uh i just love the magic between the audience and myself at that point mm-hmm. they're on the ride they've gone on the ride they're on board on this journey now and i feel like that we're all one in that moment and they're also like what's going to happen next the anticipation of excitement is mm. palpable and I it's just I love taking my time yeah I love just playing in that field of what else can I discover in this moment I, I was thinking this morning to ask you what is your emotional state during the performance like is it do you feel happy or is that too simplistic a word like what do, what are you feeling as you're performing it changes constantly because you're literally scripting in the inner life of the character. So where is the character at the top of the show? And because I'm t- playing 12 different characters, the character at the top of the show is anxious. She's going on a plane going back to deal with the death of her mother. So I literally will put myself at the edge of the seat. I'll put my body in an anxious position. I will put 
okay, the inner life going through the external way that I put my body on stage. And then when I flip from character to character, like I have to come, one character is very bright and animated and the whole thing is to seduce Franny into selling her mother into this nursing home. So I have to constantly switch the inner life from, um, you know, upbeat, cheerful, depressed, anxiety, catastrophic. So it's switching very fast. Okay. And because I have to switch very fast, I go through the body. The body allows me to switch. Putting the body in certain positions, changing the breath immediately. So it's, it's continual practice. Oh, wow. Yeah. How about connected? Do you feel connected? Because I was thinking there's, there's an interesting tension in your work because you do a solo show. Yes. You're not in an ensemble. It's a solo show. Yeah. Um, and then you have the teaching part of your life where you are, you are constantly connecting with 30 people. Yeah. And so what is it like as you are up there on stage alone? Um, upstage alone is like being in the zone of flow. And, but I feel that teaching is just two different things there's they're just two different it's just pure joy i don't want to say all the time but most of the time it is pure like joy teaching both of those oh, yeah. I mean, both of you're in the flow and you're in it's just you forget yourself which is great yeah 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 and one thing I say is people sometimes don't take the stage or do anything because of anxiety and i have tremendous anxiety and i work with anxiety and a stage fright and sick to my stomach and nerves and all that and um, even with teaching and it's lessened over the years I, there's a book I read Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway and I'm a big advocate of like and, and teaching students that too to access their body for emotion access body for story I think that's what's different with what I teach is that it's not a writing work. It's a writing, yes, but it's also like, can I liberate myself in self-expression? Find how can I expand my range and discover parts of myself that I didn't know were there, and also, you know, embrace them, especially the gnarly ones. How often do you deal with the stage fright? Every time. What is your day like when you're going to perform Loveland? Uh, Esalen is a little different because I'm teaching all day. So in one sense, there's a gift of that because the focus is on students. Um, but normal day, I will just chill all day long. I'll go through the show. I'll take baths. I'll exercise. I will um, do whatever it is to try to calm myself because relaxation is the key. The more relaxed I go on, the better it is. And so how can I get my state of total in the bathroom 24 hours a day? <laughs> <laughs> but relaxation, <laughs> trying to practice relaxation, meditation. So, mm -hmm. and I, I, what I couldn't do for myself, I would do for the show. This is going to sound, you know, um, like I ate at McDonald's growing up my whole life and I didn't, you know, take care of myself. But when I have a show, which has been for years now, I take care of myself because I have to be in service to the show, which I find interesting. I'll serve the show rather than myself. Right, even though they're too intertwined, but I will do everything to be the most optimal energy. So the energy mm -hmm. coming through me on stage is clean and high, mm -hmm. and f foods, all that. Everything has vibration, and how can I just be my very best on stage? So that show, in one sense, has made me be a better human being. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the availability. Because one, one thing that I notice about you is that you're a big cheerleader for your students. Yeah. It's, you know, 
how is it that you're... <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, when I can get to that point that I'm a cheerleader for everybody, then mm-hmm. I think that my, my leadership will be kind of, like, at a different level. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm talking about everybody. Yeah. How are you so available uh, for the students? Well, I love them. I think when you hear somebody's story and you see, you just fall in love, I, I think you see their heart. And so, and I believe everybody has this beautiful, beautiful gift. I think everybody's an artist. I think everybody's a writer. I think everybody, if they just told their story. And so I'm just a big advocate of people keep expressing their truth because there's so much power in it for themselves and for others to hear it. Yeah. And you were inspired by someone saying to you, like, you need to bring the inappropriate out. This is good. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, inappropriate is that was my the Washington Post gave me the best review ever. The headline of the Washington Post was inappropriate in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that is like, yeah, I loved that. In fact, I'm calling this talk when I'm doing San Francisco now talk. I've been invited to give a talk and I give a talk all over now called inappropriate in all the right ways. Well, tell me, tell me about that. It's kind of like what I did early on of all these bullet points of, of my life story. And then, but I usually tell it a little better, (laughs) but, um, I feel like it was rushing, rushing, rushing. Um, but teaching people, not teaching people, but just giving people permission to, to tap into that inappropriateness mm-hmm. and taboo. And, and I try to start that early on in class by just giving examples of what I've heard in class just so people can feel um, very comfortable. And I watch people shut down. I'm very aware of what happens non-verbally because if, say, a student talks about, like, masturbating to internet porn three times a week or four times or just feeling great shame, which I've had numerous times in class this come up, you know, and if the teacher looks at them in a way that is not good or inviting, then that student will shut down. So I always try to be aware also that non-verbally what's being communicated is tell me more, I want to know more, right? That there's, you know, because I, I feel that I have inside of me a pervert, you know, I have the Buddha, the beast, the animal, the whore. I have all these aspects in me, so I don't ever feel like I'm listening to somebody that is so different than me and has, I feel I'm just seeing myself in them. And I think that's what happens in the workshop is that people see themselves in people they would never imagine that they would see them. Oh, I just made a connection. Ah, I've never had this connection before that. I think my shows, these oddballs misfits, are so far out, and they're repulsed by them at the top of the show, and by the end, they love them. And the same with students that might share something that's so repulsive and so shameful, and they might have a judgment. Not, I won't, because I see myself. It just just comes because I can see myself in all these aspects, but other students who might have a wall up against somebody that masturbates or to porn, by the end of the five days, will see themselves in that person, you know. Not that they have to do that or have that belief or value, but they will see the beauty of that person. And that, I think, is the most beautiful thing that happens in the workshop, Mm -hmm. that very thing. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, and having all the students that you have who come back to you and who say, Anne, we did this, we did that. That's yeah. the most exciting thing for me, Sam, is to see you like doing this, right? You're doing this. Yeah. And yeah. what you, the show you created, right? Yeah, that's And exciting. taking off and doing this. So I, that gives me incredible joy to see people just out in the world doing, you know, not hiding their beautiful art. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about a little bit about this um, vagabond artistic life that you live. The whole free life, Sam? I think you live a life that a lot of people would, you know, love to emulate. And uh, I'm just wondering, tell me a bit about, like, what's the best part of living in Kauai and Esalen yeah. and uh, Barcelona? <laughs> yeah, Barcelona is new this year because I went there and I fell in love with it. I think the best part is, well, I think is I'm dropping into communities where I know people, I have students there, and it's part of that being in touch with people that I've been working with, or at least have seen in workshops over and over again, dropping in a scene where people are and feeling very much a part of um, a part of that community. Uh, how do I say, I guess, I'm trying to think, because I've struggled with it. Part of me loves it and part of me wants stability, like wants a home, but obviously, that's not happening. I keep wanting to jump mm -hmm. and go back to, I love Kauai so much. Mm -hmm. I love when I'm going there, I always have this intention to write and create a new show, but that island says do nothing, but <laughs> sit and look at a tree all day. And I love to hike. So I go to Kauai to really just replenish and hike and you know, do swim every day. And I do some workshops there and I love bringing people over to Kauai. Like I love students coming to Esalen because energy and land hold them in a way, not only the workshop, but the land has some of the energy of the land that helps people like go deep mm. and holds them in that process. So Kwai's it, Esalen's it, and Barcelona I fell in love with just for energetically a city, that's a city that likes to play. So I decided, well, I think I'd like to be in that city and experience that city all next summer. So, and the other place I go to a lot is, um, Ohio, where my mother is, my uh, who's in a nursing home. She's alive, still. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She's still alive because I wrote a show. Loveland is about her death, <laughs> even though she hasn't died yet. So it's morbid. I wrote the show. She came to see it. She's like, "I'm not dead yet." I go, "Well, you will be." And here's your eulogy right on stage. Um, very dark sense of humor. So I, I think part of me stays also unrooted too because I go back there so much to, to be with her and my nephews there and my brother and. Yeah, and I have Ohio peeps that yeah. I grew up with. So yeah. that is their, uh, I can't make up my mind, Sam. What, what <laughs> is a very divergent place. But I have nothing, I have nothing, I have no belongings. I have uh, never haven't really had an interest in belongings and or material things. That being said, I, I, you know, I spend a lot of money on the road eating out, you know, and seeing friends entertainment. So it's not like I'm living this frugal life. I just don't have an interest in, uh, in homemaking. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I can feel this uh, craving for intimacy now. I'm like, well, well, look, I only found one guy on Tinder in Kauai. And he was 76. <laughs> he was 76 years old. <laughs> so I think, uh, see what happens you know I'm in San Francisco now uh, doing a show in three months uh, for three so I just rented a place in three months so I just rent Airbnb mm -hmm. or uh, friends have guest house I'll rent or you know Esalen two months Kauai about four months this time San Francisco three months 
uh, British Columbia. I'm up there. I love British Columbia. Maybe three weeks out of the year, four weeks a month this year in British Columbia on these islands. I seem to do islands. I like islands. Yeah. And uh, what place would you say is the um, most productive for you creatively in terms of if you wanted to write, if you wanted to bust out a new show? Uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. That city's new. I should say that, but that city's like everybody's driven on their dream. Nobody wants to socialize, go out to eat. They're like, I am focused on my dream in LA. When you're in Los Angeles, what part of the city are you in? Uh, Santa Monica, mm -hmm. West Side, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I just feel the energy of that city is very focused and driven. Yeah. So if you write, is it in the morning or evening? Oh, Sam, whenever. Anytime. That's terrible. I'm terrible as a writer. routine. When I write best, I write when I'm in a workshop. So even if I need to go to a beginner's workshop, I'll do it just to be accountable to show up because I do work best in a workshop, and um, because I'm doing stuff live, meaning I need a live audience. I need to hear how it rolls out. Even with five people in a workshop, I'll be able to tell does that line work? Does it not? But me writing alone does not do it. Not that I don't write alone. I do. But I have to. I enter into a weekly or twice weekly workshop when I'm working on a show, mm -hmm. just to get feedback. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not uh, interested in. Yeah, I, somebody approached me about writing a book, a publisher, and maybe I'll get to that place of. But to me, it's dialogue. I'm dialogue monologue driven, and that's what's exciting to me. And that doesn't work well with sitting alone writing for hours, alone in a room. Interesting. I like to improvise a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'll improvise with my director. We'll yeah. set up improv scenarios in a space and just like wing it, turn on the tape recorder and find out what happens. With Joshua? With Joshua. Yeah. Joshua tells his owner, most amazing director. The most amazing The most man. amazing director. Yes. So he will set up a scenario to improvise within and then we turn on the tape recorder and then go. So I love working with him. So I look forward to working with Joshua again. Mm-hmm. Joshua's last name is Townsend Zellner, yeah. a very Hollywood name. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Sam had the pleasure of working with him. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. So, I guess just to conclude, how can we find out more about you? Like, if people want to want to find you on the web, where where would they look for you? Well, Sam, the World Wide Web. They would go to AnneRandolph.com. That's it. And, and find out where you're teaching. That's find out where you're teaching and performing. And I have people, people ask, where do you get your gigs? Because I get booked year-round. And what it is is mostly students who will say, I'm bringing you to this island. I'm bringing you to this city. I'm bringing you to. So my students have been amazing producers of saying, I want people to have this experience. I'm going to set this up. So I think that's been an extraordinary, like, incredible thing that has happened in my life is people wanting to bring me to other people so or the, the show the work so I am excited about that and thankful and I'm, I'm curious too about inappropriate in all the right ways is it when is it going up it's going up in uh, September 13th through November 1st in San Francisco at 2 o'clock so that's like a TED talk kind of like what I'm doing here and then I'm gonna have the audience do little workshop participation. What's that going to consist of? Their own inappropriateness? Their own inappropriateness. Owning that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah. Thank you, well, Anne, for doing this. Thanks for playing. Thank you, Sam. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Uh, to hear more episodes of this podcast, just go to www.esalen.org or you can tune into the iTunes store 
and do a search for Voices of Esalen. That's E-S-A-L-E-N. I'm your host, Sam Stern, and have a beautiful day. <laughs>